a podcast for dads who love music, made by dads who love music. And now, your hosts, Josh and Joe. Hello, and welcome to Dad Rocks, the podcast about being a dad and loving music and how the two intersect in our lives. I'm Josh, and I'm here with my co-host, Joe. What's up, Josh? And our producer, Steve. Hey, guys. So the release of this episode marks the one-year anniversary, more or less, of the start of this podcast. To mark this important milestone, we have an incredible guest on the show, former Black Crows drummer Steve Gorman. But before we get to that, we thought we'd take some time to reflect on the past year of doing this show and where we hope to go with it. So guys, it's, you know, been an absolute pleasure and and kind of like a crazy year of doing this, you know. (laughs) I mean, I know that we're, I think we're all pretty happy that we did this, right? You know, it's. Oh, yeah. yes. Oh, yes. Like you said, a hell of a year. I mean, for many <laughs> reasons. When we started it, I was in another house. Um, oh, yeah. I wasn't even, <laughs> I a, I wasn't even a homeowner yet at that point. It was pretty yeah. crazy. I was in the middle of trying to close on my house in between jobs, start of COVID. A lot, you know, all of us had a lot going on, but that's where I was during that time. So, you know, Josh, you really spearheaded this, uh, you know, thanks again for bringing me in and yeah. yeah, it's been, you know, definitely one of the highlights of the last year. And sound. Yeah. And we've, we've been talking about doing it for at least a year or two. I, I mean, definitely since my son was born. So it's gotta yep. be because my son turned two in the summer. So it's probably about a year mm-hmm. and we just never had time, you know, life gets in the way. And, and, you know, with the pandemic, like I said, on the first episode, it kind of allowed us to finally try this out and see where it was going. I think for me, I had much more high aspirations and anticipation that we would definitely be doing this more often. But that was because when I had helped out a friend's podcast way back when, they pretty much recorded two episodes a night uh, whenever they did it and just no editing, no nothing. And then, you know, bringing Steven, who's a professional, it (laughs) it definitely changed things up because, you know, we have a... I think we have a really nice sounding podcast. We do a lot of editing, which is a lot more time consuming. And this is not our main job. So, you know, I think we're finally into kind of a groove. But I mean, did you guys, besides the fact, you know, that we're ecstatic that happened, did you see any, you know, feel like we had any difficulties or any any frustrations about this? I mean, the biggest thing was just, you know, I think we already are good at chatting with each other and talking with each other and having that flow. But I think the the pod flow had to be established. Our interview flow had to be established. So I think that was a big learning curve for all of us was like seeing how, you know, we could chat on the back end and, you know, hey, all right, I'm going to jump in here. I'm going to go in there. And we kind of like knew how to adjust midstream where I think early on it was almost, you know, that that learning curve of that. Yeah. Hey, Cosmo. Oh, and then we have a <laughs> special guest. <laughs> Children um, and dog. Yeah. that's another difficulty right is finding time sure to juggling uh, family and life responsibilities right especially for you guys as dads right yeah and i mean i know joe is right now while we're talking he's talking to his son and you know his life has gotten crazier since things have gotten back to normal i mean just finding time to to record at first wasn't too big of an issue but now it's you know well yes and that was my that was my daughter came running down with our dog cosmo (laughs) She had some news, some, some gossip, some hot Uh-oh. gossip, some hot tea <laughs> she was about to spill. I'm like, tell me after the recording. I want to hear all about it. <laughs> but yeah, it was much easier. It was not say much easier, but it was easier. Like you guys were saying, we were in lockdown in the beginning. 
Yeah. There was nowhere to go. Especially for me, as I've said many times on the podcast, my kids play soccer, a lot of soccer, especially the last few weekends been really ramped up. So there was no tournaments, there was no practices and it really opened up our whole, um, you know, schedule, but life is getting even more and more back to, to normal. And, uh, I mean, luckily, well, most of us are still working from home, or at least yep. most of the time. We're all vaxxed. So yeah, we're all vaxxed. I think we're, we're definitely going to try to do more in-person recordings. We're going to, yes. you know, that's going to be something, hopefully, that will make things a little easier for us to yep. edit and, you know, get things going. But, you know, I think moving forward, I'm I personally, you know, having done like a, a music blog when I was in grad school and I tried to, you know, I was happy I did it for a year and then I moved it on for like almost two years and then, you know, my life got in the way. I, I just think that it's a big testament to the fact that we really like doing this and that we want to do this and that yeah. there's a passion of ours that we're even at this point where we're saying, Hey, we're a year in. So, you know, we're, we, we hope to continue to, to do this once a month at, at the very least. I mean, I'm just happy at the feedback that we've been getting. Everyone I've talked to has been giving us, you know, a lot of support and, you know, positive feedback on it. And I'm, I'm just happy that people are listening and they're enjoying what they're hearing too, mm-hmm. which, you know, makes me want to do this, this even more. Yeah. And we're getting listeners from uh, around the world, which is interesting too. Yeah. And people that, you know, have heard that, that our bigger names have given us props as far as, you know, what, what we bring to the table. They didn't like turn our podcast off listening through. So that's, that's a good sign. Or they said yes to interviews. So it's. Oh, yeah. And that's the other thing. I mean, like just right. the guests, like that's another yeah. thing I'm amazed at. Like we had, <laughs> our first guest was Rob Mitchum, who I just randomly emailed. Cold email, just was right? Like, yeah. Cold emailed. Didn't know him from anything, did, you know, read an article that he had written and was like, let's get this guy on. He said, sure. And now he's been on twice and we'll probably have him on again. If, yeah, you he's know. great. Yeah, and he was, he's an he awesome great. guy. Great guest. And then to have Chris Ballou from Presence United States of America, also as Casper Baby Pants, again, literally just emailed, messaged through his contact form. And he said, yes, tonight's guest, Steve Gorman, like... Is, he was one of our biggest gifts, yeah. you know, at the beginning of this. We were like, we were, yeah, we were like, <laughs> okay, we'll get, we got Mitchum. So maybe with them, we'll get Steve Hyden, who we still hope to get. We were going to have him and then his schedule kind of got crazy and mm-hmm. didn't back out. Um, yep. He's a rock writer, if you don't know. And then we're like, okay, so Hyden wrote this book with Gorman, then we'll get Gorman on. <laughs> and then, you know, again, just one night I was like, you know what? I'm just going to send this out. I'm getting antsy. I'm just like, we got to get something. And, you know, it took a few days for him to respond. He's like, yeah, man, let's, let's, you know, email me. I think I'm just amazed at some of the guests that we've had on, even like, I think Ricky Johnson, I think that was a great conversation. Oh my God. And, oh yes. And, Such a good conversation. Yeah. And I know that we, we, when we have some more guests that we have on our a list of potential guests that we'd hope to have on. I think the best part about the guest was uh, surprising our friends, especially about oh, Steve yes. Gorman. And oh, that was the, the highlight reaction. of everything. <laughs> yes. Almost as much as talking to Steve Gorman was uh, yeah. surprising our friend. <laughs> Look who we're talking uh-huh. to. Yeah, uh-huh. We're also huge Black Crows fans. So I hope that some people, you know, enjoyed like some of our earlier parenting, you know, ideas, of, especially about explicit content, the concerts one, even like, you know, discussing yep. having the, the bit about, I know we got some really good feedback on that too, which was, you know, uh, great. I think mm-hmm. our friend Norm even said, you know, that was a great 
you know, point about, you know, not like our lives totally change. Right, Joe? Yes. And I want to shout out Norm, who, uh, you know, I I talked about, I think, 30 concerts that me and him uh, attended together, but I didn't actually say his name. So I want to shout out Norm during our Montclair State days, late 90s, early 2000s of all the uh, amazing concerts we we attended during those years. But um, yeah, the concert one was definitely one of the highlights. You know, for me and also a lot our, of good our, feedback from buddy, that one. Uh, you know, Adam Shanker. Oh yeah, was, Adam a, was great. a great guest. We're definitely going to have him back on probably for. Well, it could be a lot of things. It could be a you know possibly a vinyl episode. I mean, we I, I just want to do a tour of his basement um, and all the posters. <laughs> I mean, you should have seen. We were on Zoom during it, and after the interview, he kind of gave us like a you know walked around his basement and it was like wow we could just do an episode on this on like his posters like a rock hall exhibit yeah many rooms multiple rooms of just like i don't know 50 to 100 posters or more i guess more yeah and you know we're gonna we'll reach for the stars but yeah I, i think you know i think we're gonna keep going with this as far as we can and you know thank you for those of you who have been listening and if this is your first time listening because you want to listen to our interview with gorman or and you haven't already skipped ahead to that <laughs> you know thanks for for listening hope you enjoy it and you know i think we'll see how things go for the next year yeah thank you guys thank you for listening thank you guys for being good co-hosts and you Absolutely. know being good researchers and interviewers that helps that helps my job yeah, yeah, def- definitely, definitely want to thank the, thank the fans out there, people listening. Like Josh said, it's your first time. You know, definitely uh, check out our older episodes, some of the topics we've been just talking about now. And uh, but definitely stay tuned for a really, really awesome interview with one of our you know favorite rockers from one of our favorite all time bands. And I guess it's time. Let's let's get to that interview with Steve Gorman. everyone josh here real quick while we try to keep our shows clean for all ears to listen this episode isn't fully kid or work appropriate so if you don't already listen with headphones or while you're driving to work alone we highly suggest you do just that for this episode to say today's episode is special would be an understatement he is someone that was at the very top of our list of dream guests when we started the podcast last year i don't think we honestly ever thought we would get the chance to interview him. He is an author, a nationally syndicated radio show host, and most notably, the former drummer of the Black Crows and a huge drumming influence to both Joe and I, Mr. Steve Gorman. Steve, welcome to Dad Rocks. It's a pleasure to be here, gentlemen. The dad thing, uh, it just sucked me right in. I, I'll, I'll, I'll just, you know, I was like, oh, fuck. I, dad, okay, I'll talk to some dads. I've been there. I, I know how difficult this transition is. How has this last year been for you? It's not been as bad for me as it's been for a lot of people. So I remind myself of that every day when I start to climb the walls and and pull my hair out and lose my mind over the fact that I can't go out and play shows or or do any of the normal things I want to do. As you mentioned, I do have a radio show. And we once we figured out how to keep that show making sense from home, there was a minor adjustment for a week or two of how do we do this show. Once we figured that out, that settled in, all of which to say, I have an awful lot of musician friends who don't have something else to do. They are touring musicians who for 
years and in some cases decades have just jumped on a, the next bus for the next guy who called. And when that all ended, uh, you know, their their entire worldview changed pretty dramatically, really swiftly. So I I feel really just very fortunate to have had other things to keep me occupied during this time. Yeah, I was uh, actually curious. You're mentioning recording from home because I heard you mention being inside of a studio named after your sponsor, but I wasn't sure if you guys had moved to all remote, like technically... How does the show work for you in uh, April? It's not unlike what we're doing right now. You know, we just okay. connect and we record segments together, but we're not necessarily together. Mm-hmm. The show is still, we do it every day. I mean, a lot of, a lot yeah. of the, the, the kind of show we do, like a syndicated classic rock show, an awful lot of those are done. The, the host comes in and just does a series of segments for the next six weeks or All whatever. All the bumps and stuff, yeah. Uh, we, we do the show every day. I mean, we just get up, put the log together, and wow. then come up with our segments. And we just want it to feel fresh and want it to be, you know, classic rock's interesting. It's, as I say, it's songs everybody's heard a billion times. But there's a reason you've heard them a billion times. Yeah, and the billion and first time still sounds pretty good, you know. So <laughs> we're, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel but we are trying to keep a show that's focusing on music from a long time ago as fresh as we possibly can. Are you curating the playlists, like the musical it's playlist? A, it's a group endeavor. Uh, and I'll be honest, if I were the one curating it, there'd be a ton of music no one's ever heard before, and that's not how this format works. <laughs> you know? Sure. A five-hour show is a long show to well, get it's, 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 it's 50 songs a night. You know, it's 10 hours. A sh- it's 10 songs an hour, and... The truth is that, you know, we're, like I said, we're not trying to reinvent the format. There's, you can go pretty far out. You don't want to go too far out because syndicated radio is very different than local radio. I don't want to bore anyone listening to this with all the nuts and bolts of how radio works, (laughs) you know, but, but there are people not named Steve Gorman who study radio trends and who study what listeners want and who have a really good grasp on on all those things. And I, you know, I'm the host of a show that's giving an audience something that we know they want, but within the context of a well-oiled framework, I think our show is, is pretty fresh. I mean, because we do it every day, I do talk about things that happen today. You know what I mean? Like in that realm, you got to remember the entire context of what we're doing and coming from a world righted sports talk radio for years and years, it wouldn't make sense otherwise, because that's all about what's happening right now. You know, it's like, that's live. It has to be live. And so this show um, originally was live, you know, until the pandemic hit. I was sitting in the studio every mm. night for five hours, you know, playing air drums and listening to music and figuring out what <laughs> I was going to talk about. And now, as it turns out, we just do the show in the you know late afternoon, right before it hits the air, we're recording the segments. And we can still, during the course of the night, like, you know, if something happens... I jump in and say, hold on, let's re-record this and put this up. It's all credit to my producer, Sarah, who's, you know, a whirling dervish of a technical wizard. You know, you, you have your radio show, but you also have your band, your current band, Trigger Hippie. Obviously that, they were supposed to be, I think, or you were on tour early on in, in 2020, yeah. or there was going to be another tour. And obviously that's been put on hold. But were there any other projects, major projects that you had to put on hold because of this pandemic or uh, was it pretty much just the band? There was the band. There was a book tour that was, I had been doing bits and bops and hitting here and there, but we had a whole thing that we were just about to announce where I was really going to go hit a bunch of places all in a row. 
that went away. And then I had several projects that were in development that are still in development, various things. There was a couple of, uh, there was some interesting things floating around that may or may not have happened anyway, but you know, they went away because everything did. One other project that's a wholly new thing that I'm not at liberty to discuss right now has not gone away. It's just been delayed. And that will be, uh, I'll be talking about that soon enough. And that's really exciting. So, cool. you know, I've managed to stay busy with, I mean, the show obviously uh, takes up a lot of time, but then the rest of uh, whatever else I was trying to do for the most part beyond Trigger Hippie, everything else just kind of ran its course. Um, so Trigger Hippie and then this one other thing, which I will be discussing soon enough, are still very much alive and just waiting for the, you know, the green flag cool. to wave so we can get back to it. So right now you're in Nashville, right? Yeah. So how long have you been there and like what brought you to the city? Because I know that you were born in Maryland and you basically grew up in Kentucky. So I wasn't sure if it was like, you know, you felt as Nashville was like your home or or what? Or Josh, I, I I hate to break it to you. I was born in Michigan. No, I apologize. I, was, I, <laughs> oh. I, I think I read it. Western I, boy. I, I guess the Wikipedia is wrong. So <laughs> go figure. <laughs> it's never um, wrong. <laughs> no, I was born in Muskegon, Michigan. Uh, my parents are both Detroit natives. And so it's very much a Detroit family that had moved up to the West Coast of Michigan. I'm the youngest of eight. And right. uh, my dad bounced around a lot. So I had, you know, like in my family, there were three kids born in Detroit, two born in New Jersey, and then three more born in Muskegon, Michigan. And then when I was a baby, we moved, or a toddler, actually, we moved to, uh, I say Baltimore, Maryland. It was actually Severna Park, Maryland is where we lived. I have a couple of friends from there, yeah. Okay, my dad worked in Baltimore. We lived in Severna Park, which is just south of the city. And I lived there till I was 10, and that's when I moved to Kentucky at 10 years old. So Nashville, from the time I was 10 years old, was the city that, had th that was the place where you went if you lived in Hopkinsville to, yeah. I mean, to go to an airport, to see a foreign film, to see a concert, to go to Opryland to ride roller coasters. Everything yeah. was Nashville. So I was very familiar with Nashville. And then as a college student, specifically at Western Kentucky University, I was in Nashville many, many, many weekends because that is where I went to see all the bands I loved. And, and in the 80s, you know, the club scene in the South was pretty exuberant and, and, and really spectacularly inspirational. Yeah. I mean, cause that's what brought you eventually to Georgia was that, that Atlanta Athens scene, right? Was, or I mean, besides yeah. Your, well, your body, uh, yeah, yeah, what originally brought me to Atlanta was a buddy of mine that a, a kid I'd gone to high school with in Kentucky named Clint Steele. He, he was from Atlanta and then he moved up to Kentucky. His dad got a job there of some sort for high school, you know, so he spent most of his life in Atlanta showed up for a few years of high school in a small town in Kentucky. We became great friends. And then I went off to college. He ended up going to college in Massachusetts, but we stayed in touch and we were always huge music fans together. You know, he was one of my music buddies. And uh, he's the guy who called and said, do you want to start a band? And I said, yes. And originally he said, let's do it in Boston because he was going to college in Massachusetts. And I said, cool. And then you know, a few weeks later, he goes, actually, Atlanta's way cheaper and it's not as cold. <laughs> and I said, cool. I, I mean, I honestly didn't care where we were going to do it, but I was really happy he said Atlanta because, as you said, it was close to Athens. And I just it, it just was still in the southeast. I felt familiar there. I'd never been to Boston. 
I had spent, you know, a couple of days of my life in Atlanta. So at least that felt a little more familiar. Right. But I would have I would have gone anywhere. I mean, I didn't really care that much. But he said, let's do it in Atlanta. And I said, sure. And was that uh, Mary My Hope? Was that, was that the band that you were? Yep. Yep. And was that like the first band you really drummed in or had you drummed? Oh, no, like in for band sure. Before, There's or? no like. I mean, it was, <laughs> that was it. I, that was up it. to that point, I had played. Uh, I had played drums a handful of times. My freshman year of college, fall of 83, at Western Kentucky University, I was conscripted into a band that my older brother had started years ago, and it was all a joke. It was a Andy Kaufman <laughs> performance art joke. He had a band <laughs> in college. He had a band in college called Alfred and the Stately Wayne Manors. Okay. And now this That's is in awesome. the 80s, before the first Batman movie. This was hip in the 80s. <laughs> Early 80s, yeah, yeah. Yep. Alfred and the Stately Wayne Manors. My brother was Alfred, and they were just guys at Western Kentucky University that would put flyers up for a gig, and then every gig was canceled due to family emergency. Like, <laughs> or, you know, it, it, was, yeah, yeah. it really was just performance art. It was just my brother and some friends that loved music that, of course, were dying to be in a band but had no talent or any idea how to do that. They just had this shtick that they ran. This is guys that grew up obsessing over Monty Python and SCTV and Saturday Night Live, you know, the early days. And this is just a natural extension of their fandom of those things. And so it was a shtick that, like, I was in high school when he was in college, and I was always aware of it, and I always thought it was hilarious. And, you know, he had the fly. They would make flyers and put them up, Alfred and Stately Wayne Manors. And then they would follow up with... They would make a smaller flyer to go over the first one that said canceled in big letters. You know, they just were, they were having fun. And so when I got to school, because I had literally sat behind a drum kit and played a straight beat like twice in my life, my brother was like, well, you can actually play drums. We could actually be a band now. Like, let's actually do this. And it really came, it, well, all right, I'm getting too long, way in the weeds here, but the, the, some of the guys that my brother, my brother, Dave Gorman, he was uh, good friends with his buddy, Mike Fox and Mike Fox is from Nashville. And all these guys in Nashville had an annual standing New Year's Eve party. So New Year's Eve, 83 is going to be the worldwide <laughs> premiere of Alfred and Stately Wayne Manners. They finally had a drummer, me. And I don't like, I'd literally played drums for seven minutes. And so I had to find somebody with a kit and borrow it. I had to go through all that. But they had a guitar player, a guy named Jeff, who could play enough. And we found a bass player who was actually really good. So, we, you know, if the bass player is good, everyone else can fake it. And my brother as the singer could totally fake it. And we played a New Year's Eve party my freshman year of college, 83, 84 New Year's Eve. And we learned like 12 songs. And I was, that was it. I was like, the next morning, I'm telling everybody, we got to do this for real. Let's be a band. And they're all looking at me like I'm insane because <laughs> this is their, you know, this is their drunken college joke band. And I'm saying, no, really, let's go be REM. Come on. And so we played that party for three years in a row, like, oh, you wow. know, 83, 84 and 85. And after the third one, I was finally so desperate to really be in a band. I found some other guys up in Bowling Green, the rugby team at Western, it was a club team. They all rented this house. They had this one house. And so we started a series of shows where we were the rugby house band and the rugby team, bunch of guys from Kentucky trying to be English rugby players. So of course there was kegs and they got drunker than shit and they all had to fight. It was ridiculous. But we, for a series of Friday nights in 1986, me and some buddies played there and we changed the name of the band every gig, which is not a good way to build a band. <laughs> the, the marketing is way off when you change your name every gig. 
But so we were, you know, baby Faye and the heartless baboons. I don't know how old you guys are, but there was a baboon heart that was put into a baby, a child named Faye. Yeah, <laughs> literally as a baboon heart transplant <laughs> to a child named baby Faye. So we were baby Faye and the heartless baboons. <laughs> We were Coupe de Villa in the autos. We were all these various, you know, I was Dodge Dart that night. Everyone had a band, you know, Stu DeBaker was our guitarist. You know, it's just college shtick. Every time I would sit down and play, I was twice as good as the time before. And I was aware of that. And I wasn't going to say that to anybody because I knew that sounded crazy. But I kept going, fuck, man, I'm really good at this. And this is all I ever really wanted to do. And it was sort of like such a dream thing. I couldn't. I couldn't imagine taking it seriously because that's just too much of a, oh my God, what, what, what does that even mean? So with all that as a bit of a backdrop, September of 86, I'm starting my senior year of college and I'm really panicking about that fact <laughs> because I was supposed to drop out and start a band years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, my buddy called me and said, you're playing drums, right? And I said, oh yeah, yeah, done, let's go. And you know, next thing you know, I moved to Atlanta and we started a band and my friend Clint, who made that phone call, he had rented a house with Sven Pippian, his bass player, mm-hmm. later obviously a huge part of the Black Crows, mm-hmm. and the other roommate was their friend Chris Robinson. Wow. Right. And so that's how this whole thing started. And you had mentioned in your book just, and I heard in other interviews too, just before, even before you started really playing for real, you know, you always were kind of focused a little bit on drums, like you were tapping along, listening to music, or kind of always zeroing in when you listen to music. To, to the drummer. Is that true? Yeah, not a little bit. I, I was a drummer from the time I was five. I just didn't do anything yeah. about it. Like yeah. I didn't, I literally looked at myself and I, I told people, oh, I'm a drummer. I mean, I would say that to people. I remember hearing myself saying that. <laughs> I had nothing to back that up other than in my head, just, I knew I was a drummer. And that yep, yep. was a very real thing from, I mean, I was five years old when I made that discovery about myself and it never went away. I mean, it never, all it did was gather steam for 16 years. And then when I was 21, I finally bought a drum kit. And one thing that Josh and I love about your drumming is that you never get too busy. You're more of a field drummer, which I am as well, totally than like technical, you know, crazy drummer. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't, care too. I mean, even Steve Gadd has incredible feel. That's the, you know, that's why he's great. Like we can talk about the song Asia all day long, but honestly, (laughs) but, but you know, like the, the, the fills are incredible and the beats are amazing, but he, it makes you, it feels right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Feel is the entire story. Absolutely. I mean, it really is that simple. That's not shtick. I'm not trying to be like, I'm not defending my lack of fills. (laughs) My concern has always been feel. Um, my favorite drummer has always been Ringo. My second favorite is John Bonham. And then there's a billion guys behind those two. But those two guys have the best swing in rock and roll. And that's Absolutely. always what has resonated with me the most. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it's just, you know, I, I grew up listening to, you know, obviously the Crows and, you know, the Beatles, but I also listened to Rush. So when I was younger, I always wanted to play yeah, as sure. fast or as crazy as Neil Peart. And yeah. so that's, that to out? me, it's. <laughs> it didn't work out. <laughs> you know, I, you know, just wondering, I, I maybe, took, maybe you're yeah. the second Neil yeah. Peart and I no. just haven't heard of you yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's like, you know, as I got older and realized, you know, I'm not putting the effort in to learn all the technical stuff, but right. I'm still playing gigs. There was, I had, you know, I had one audition for a jazz program where the guys who was running it got his sax on and started playing with me and I wasn't doing anything crazy. It's all about feel. And yeah. that was kind of like, you know, a lightning bolt moment for me. It was like, well, I just got to keep it simple and just lock in with the band yeah. um, and not try to do too much. So, you know, that's well, just. I, and again, that comes down to, um, you know, Neil Peart's a very special case. He joined 
a band that only had mm-hmm. two other guys and they were cool with him playing that way. <laughs> you know what I mean? And a lot of people have a lot of people that can play like that don't have the same sensibility as Neil Peart. Like it took me a while to figure out his greatness. Obviously, Technically speaking, well, duh. I mean, yeah. that shit's amazing. Yeah. And I'll be honest, it's only been in the last 10 or 15 years that I actually spent time listening to him where I realized, like, oh, there's feel all over that stuff. Like, that's that's a, this bizarre, like, you know, there's a lot of... A lot of really fast drummers, a lot of really technically precise drummers that don't do anything for me. And then I started going, once I got past my innate bias against Rush based solely on the guys I knew in high school that liked Rush, you know, I yep. was like, man, this guy's fucking special. I mean, it's like, yeah, no shit, Steve, you know, but but it really was like I, I never said, uh, you know, when he died, I, I wrote a thing that day and I wrote, he's never been my guy. I'm not about to say he is now, but holy shit, you know, what a fucking yeah. thing to leave behind. Like jazz, you don't have to understand jazz to be moved by it especially with the drummers you know there's a reason everyone knows who elvin jones is and it's not because he's got the best chops there's just something about that guy's swing that's just like it man he's just you're like it can be in the background at a restaurant or it can be loud as hell on the speakers in your car and you're just like man check that out drumming is about feel in music that i care about and for that matter listen to the first devo album that drumming's unbelievable on that record you can't replicate that shit It's all choppy and weird and bizarre, but it still is a band playing live in the studio. And that guy, Alan Meyer, was fucking fantastic. Uh, I, I noticed you, you just tweeted about Devo, about their appearance on uh, Fridays. It's inc- it's incredible. Watch that whole thing. That band was so, you know, they, they clearly made their mark right when they hit the national scene, yeah. but they were lapping themselves. They were, they, they, were, they were way ahead of where people, I think, at the time even realized. They just happened to have some catchy songs and funny uniforms, but... But they yeah. were amazing. Their their entire mindset and what they were doing and why they were doing it is incredible to me. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you about just your drumming on Shaker Moneymaker. I mean, that was such a big album for me. I've, I was like 11, 12 years old, just getting into drumming. Mm-hmm. I think that was one of my first five CDs I ever bought. I mean, I, like that was such a key album that I learned drumming to. You know, just obviously hard to handle has become an iconic drum intro. I mean, as big as any... To me, even any Ringo intro, any Bonham, I mean, that is one of the, the best. And it's just all feel twice as hard, the whole album. I mean, what was your approach going into the studio recording that? Like, was that your first real, like, studio session? Like, real session? Oh, yeah. Well, I had done a couple of sessions before yeah. that. I did one in 1987 when I had been playing for all of three months. And then <laughs> I did one. That was um, Mr. Crow's Garden. Before okay. I was actually in Mr. Crow's Garden, they just had a demo opportunity with A&M Records. It didn't really lead anywhere. It was just one song. I think they had done one before I even joined the band. Before me, they had done one. And then we went back for a second one. That is the greatest example of being so far in over your head, you don't even, you you think you're flying. You know what I mean? Like, it's just reality has left the building. And if I just pretend I'm here and okay... 
Because I, I mean, I bought that drum kit in March of '87, and this is probably June, and I'm in a studio in North Carolina with a 24 track desk and a real producer who'd made a Rain Parade record, and I'm just like, you know, he's putting mics on the kit. And I, I mean, I've never been, I've seen a Fostex four track recorder once in my life before, and now I'm in this real studio. A year later, after we had met George Jaculius, we did a couple days in a studio in Atlanta with him in July of '88, and that was the second time. And then, I mean, unless I'm somehow forgetting something else, Shake Your Moneymaker was the third time I'd ever been in a real studio. Wow. Again, in over my head, doesn't begin to describe it, you know, yeah. like looking back. <laughs> but, you know, arrogance can, and charm can bring you a long way in life, <laughs> as Mr. Crow's Garden learned. It was a real boomerang. I went from being supremely confident to terribly insecure in a minute's time, five million times during a three-week period. You yeah. know, it was just really... I did feel like, because I started so late, I mean, I didn't get my first kit till I was 21, and now this is all of two years later, but I just felt like I was behind the eight ball the whole time. Like, man, everyone else was doing this in high school. I'm late. I'm late. I got to do this. I'm I'm not going to have another chance. I just had this whole sense that it was all or nothing. You know, I'd played sports growing up my whole life, too. And so I'd been in situ. I mean, I look now, I didn't think about it then, but now I look back and I'm like, oh, that's just a district tournament again. You know, it's like, it's (laughs) all or nothing. You know, what are you going to do? You know, I'm like, and I always had that sense of, well, I'm going down swinging. I mean, this might not work, but it's not going to be because I chickened out. And so those sessions were really, really rough for a few days. And once, uh, this is in the book, you know, once I figured out George's literal, just his terminology about working with a click track, it got a lot better. I had to have a nervous breakdown in order to figure out how to relax and play in the studio. But once I did, it was fine. Like, I think we, you know, we were there for a little less than three full weeks. And I don't think one of those tracks was done in the first week. You know, everything once Mm. it's like, it just took a while to click. And then once it did, and that wasn't just me, it was, he wanted the tracks to feel good. He wanted the rhythm section to at least click. And Johnny had just joined the band Mm. and You know, Rich and I were still, we were just learning how to play our instruments. You know, where we were in 1989 compared to where we were in 1991, we made Southern Harmony as night and day as individual players and as a collective band. So it was, it was really stressful. You know, it wasn't, I mean, when we got a track and when George and Brenda would go, that's it. I mean, the relief was was (laughs) unbelievable, but, um, you know, overall it was just, it, it was just stressful. It was just like a perfect, it was a perfect, uh, by the way, get used to stress, kid. This is going to be a bumpy ride. You know, it yeah. was pretty, looking back, it was like, yeah, that's how it's going to be. The results are going to be great, and it's going to be hard as hell to get there. So as you alluded to, and obviously as the title of the, the podcast, we discuss parenthood and, and, and yeah. being fathers. You have two kids, right? Yep. And they're 20-ish? They're 20 and 18. Okay. They, they will be 21 and 19 this summer. Was becoming a dad something that you always wanted to, you know, be? Was, you know, fatherhood something that you always saw in your future? I think I always just assumed it. More, more than I wanted it, I just assumed that was going to be the case, you know? I'm the youngest of eight, and 
I have five brothers and two sisters, and all but one are parents. And you know, I, I had my my first nephew was born when I was fifteen. Hmm. Uh, in 1980. And so I just turned 15, you know, and then a bunch more came right after that. You know, I have a ton of adult nephews and nieces. So I was just around that. And, you know, you just, as the youngest of such a big family, I mean, so much of who I am and what I see in the world is from my siblings, you know, from growing up being the, the last duck in the little row of ducks going to the lake. And so that being a parent is just one of those things. I don't think I ever really seriously thought about it. You know, it's funny. My wife and I got married. I don't think we ever discussed having kids before we got married. It was just we got married. And then, you know, and then one day it's like, hey, um, are we going to do that? Like, what's the story? Like, what are we thinking? You know, and it was it was as late. You know, our, our son was born in the year 2000. And I remember in 1999 definitively saying, Okay, 2000 is baby year, you know, with this thought in our head, like, it'll, we'll just make this happen. Obviously, there's, you know, it's not that simple. And I do look back now and go, well, we were just lucky that it worked out that way. But we made this decision in early 1999 to go uh, to to take one year. You know, it was like the band was going to be really busy for 99. You know, we just said, well, I just was like, well, just come on the road and just travel as much as you can this year. Because once the baby comes, we ain't on the road as much. You know, you're not going to be there. And so that was our loose plan. It was just that simple. So for a lot of that year, and it really, well, actually, this goes back to the summer of 98. So from the summer of 98 through the summer of 99, Rosemary was out on the road more than she'd ever been before. You know, I was just like, every time we get an itinerary, just look at it and figure out where you want to be. You're like, where do you want to go? Just come out then and see all these places. And so as it turned out, by the summer of 99, uh, you know, we were at the end of the summer. We had, she'd been, we'd been doing this perfectly. And then it was time to like, okay, so if we want a baby next year, let's really start to think about this. And that was also the time when I decided I was going to quit the band. Like, I was like, okay, I'm ready to leave. I'm, I'm done. This is time. And then Jimmy Page decided he wanted to do some dates, and would we want to as well? And the answer is hell yes. And so suddenly I'm back in the band. And next thing you know, like all of 2000 is booked with Page. We've got a big year ahead of us. And we were like, well, we're we're going to have this baby, right? <laughs> like, let's just go. You know, just, I don't know. That was all sort of connected at the same time. Uh, and so, yeah, our son was born the summer of 2000 in between legs of the Jimmy Page tour. a week late but still within the framework of what we had hoped he would do when we booked the dates like we took a, a you know a break around that due date hoping against uh you know like okay well let's just make sure he shows up when i'm home and it worked yeah. out bringing that up uh, i was curious you know because you mentioned that you were gonna you were planning on quitting the band and then Paige came in and then you guys recorded lions i, I think your son you said i guess was born before lions was recorded yeah. and then then after Lions, uh, at the end of 2001, uh, I guess maybe it was October 2001, the band goes on hiatus and you then have like three and a half years or whatever before you come back in. Did you 
feel fortunate and or relieved that you were given that opportunity to be at home with your new you know, child. Oh, and I guess yeah. you had your second one. Yeah. Yeah. Our too. second, our, our daughter showed up in the summer of 2002. And at that time we, we moved out to LA, uh, in the spring of 2002. I had some things I was working up then. I had a whole project actually, I was writing with a great comedy mm-hmm. writer, my good friend, Jeff Cesario. And we had a TV show that we were developing. We moved to LA with the thinking, well, we'll be here for a few years and then let's figure out either we'll stay there but if not, let's figure out where we're going to be forever and then just get established. Like our, our, our mindset was once our son starts school, like, you know, 2005 or six, first grade, let's just be somewhere and stay. Like that was, a th- you know, maybe it's L.A., but let's get out there and figure it out. Right. So we went out there thinking this may only be a few years, but I wanted to investigate that. As soon as I got to L.A., I started playing with a lot of people. You know, I went out there to write this thing. And that went really well, and it was incredibly educational, and it was a blast. And then I also was drumming with a lot of folks, just a a whole lot of things, nothing major, just a lot of people were putting together a project. Hey, do you want to jam? Do you want to jam? I'd go sit in or do sessions. George was hiring me. George DeCoulias got me in the studio a bunch. So I was just staying busy. But I, yeah, when, uh, when our daughter was born in June of 2002 for the next Really, for the rest of that year, I, I d- didn't have to do much. I was just at home. And so, you know, with a toddler and a baby, L.A. is great because it's just good weather and you can just open yeah. the back door and they're they're in a fenced-in backyard and there's a big dog to bark if weird people show up. And it was just a really easy place to be in that situation. So to answer your question, yeah, it was fantastic. My daughter, she was 18 months old when I went on tour with Stereophonics. And it was really difficult. I mean, it, it was definitely a, a change. You know, when when the Black Crows toured in 2001, you know, it's fun, going back, you know, my wife Rosemary and I were like, well, you won't be on the road once we have a baby. Well, that's not true. They were on the road a ton in 2001. You know, my wow. yeah. my son's celebrated his first birthday in Tokyo. You know what I mean? Like they were, it was just like, oh, I guess we just have an extra seat for the baby seat on the plane. You know, it's like, oh, it's not as difficult as we imagined. So they did travel a bunch, but then, you know, we had 18 months with two kids where, you know, I, I would put them to bed every night and it was just fantastic. I really wasn't climbing the walls. I wasn't thinking about, I wish I was on the road at all. I was just completely into that mode. I was working on this other project with Jeff Cesario and I was home and it was great. When, you know, you mentioned how your family did come on the road with you when you were touring with the Stereophonics and even, you know, back with, uh, in the Lions tour, when you did officially rejoin the band in 2005 and you guys mm-hmm. were touring nonstop, how often was your family on tour with you? And were you the only guy with a family in tow? No. Well, well, at that time, let me think about it. I mean, Chris and Kate had had a son. And so right. they, he, you know, Ryder was out a good bit. And, you know, Rich had two sons at that point with his first from his first marriage. And they were the same age, roughly, as ours. His oldest was a little older. And then and then his son his second son and my son are the same age. And so they were around a little bit, but, but for 05 and 06, I definitely, my kids were, were out a lot more often, I think, than anybody else's just by the very, just for whatever reason, you know, they were still at an age where they didn't have their own lives yet. You know, once yeah. kids hit nine or 10, suddenly they're like, I don't want to go on tour with you. I want to be with my friends, you know? And so at three and five and four and six, you know, those early, once the band got back together, my kids were more than half. They were just going wherever we were going and they weren't thinking twice about it. Awesome. Now, you know, just to get back to the idea of being a father 
You know, mm-hmm. for a lot of people, it changes their perspective on life. It, you know, it has a, a, yeah, a sure. major impact. On, but did it like change your outlook on, you know, everything or some things or, you know, being a musician, a touring oh, musician? On, on everything. On absolutely everything. Yeah. I mean, as much as anybody, I thought I knew what to expect. Um, and again, I'd been an uncle many times for many years. I'd been around friends who'd gone through this. You know, all my friends had kids. You know, my wife and I were 35 when our son was born. So we had a lot of friends who'd already beaten us to the punch. But no, the day he was born, I mean, that night, you know, we, we, he was born in New York. You know, we lived in Brooklyn. He was born at a hospital in Manhattan. And I can remember the night he was born sitting in the hospital. My wife just, you know, asleep. He's asleep. And I'm sitting in this hospital room. It was at St. Vincent's on the west side, like at 14th. And I'm staring out of our window downtown at the World Trade Center. And I'm just sitting there going... (laughs) First of all, I'm like, oh, my God, we live in New York City. Like, all right. You know, like, hey. And then we have a baby now, and he's right there. And that whole night was spent just sort of thinking back to how did all this happen? I really did spend his first night when he and Rosemary were asleep anyway. I was just I was just looking back at the last 13 years going, man, I can't believe all that's happened. This is wild. And then the next day... He was born on July 24th. July 25th, I woke up, you know, after sleeping in a chair with a crick in my neck for 36 minutes. <laughs> and I yeah. turned on the TV and the Concorde crash in Paris was that day. You remember wow. when the there yeah. was that famous Concorde, yes. the wing was on fire. And I only mention that because I remember looking at that and just being so horrified, like, oh, my God. The world is a scary place, and why is this baby <laughs> going to be subjected to these things? You know, it's just. Yeah. And I remember I was laughing at myself, going, yeah, "What are you doing?" Like I, I suddenly felt like I had to put him in bubble wrap and protect him from <laughs> yeah. all of the elements of the world. And I was home for about a week and a half, and then I had to go out for the next leg of the tour with Jimmy Page. And when I got to Albuquerque for the first show, walking around that venue that day, just I just had a bunch of photos that I was showing everybody, like, look at my babe, look at this beautiful boy. Can you believe this? I'd never been a dad at a gig before. I mean, it was very, very different. I was just like... I missed somebody so much I couldn't stand it. You know what I mean? I I could call my wife and we could talk. I can't talk to a 17-day-old baby, you know, or whatever it was. I'm like, oh, my God, I, I'm supposed to be there. So I, I was hit pretty hard with a sense of, man, this is not this is not cool. Wait a minute. He's, he's not going to know who I am. I wasn't thinking about in one day, but the plan was we were going to be on the road up until November. This was August. And I was really starting to freak out about that. I mean, unluckily and luckily, the tour was canceled two days later and I went home. The great silver lining of, of losing that tour that I was having a blast on was I missed three days of my or four days of my son's life. And I was back and I was like, all right, that's cool. I'm fine. <laughs> I just that's just where I wanted to be. Yeah, sometimes life is weird like that. And, uh, you know, well, you know, and I mean, I had gone through so much already of my own personal torture that I was you know, putting myself through. The band was a, a difficult place to be. I'm at some point coming to grips with my own issues, my codependency and my this and that and my blind loyalty and all of these various things that are huge parts of my personality that I've had to really face and, and try to you know make manageable.
from the minute he was born, a whole lot of that gray area just dissipated. Like, literally. Oh, none of that fucking matters. Okay. You want to throw drama at me? Go ahead. I don't care. Like, I'm, I'm just going to take care of this kid now. Like, I, it... Nope. And, you know, another thing is that I immediately, for the first time ever, I looked at my own father very differently. You know, I looked at my parents like I was 35. I'm out on a huge tour with Jimmy Page. You know, I'm living in Brooklyn and like we have this great life in a great neighborhood in a great city on a great tour. I was right before my 35th birthday when my son was born. When my dad was 34, he had six kids. He had two more that were going to show up. And he was an assistant plant manager at Brunswick in Muskegon, Michigan, making like 36 grand a year. And I was like, oh, that might explain the tension. <laughs> that might explain <laughs> a lot of things, you know? Yeah. And then suddenly I realized like my job above everything else is to take care of this kid and give him a roof, like provide for him. And I immediately looked at my parents and went, oh my God, they did this for eight of us. You know, and again, that's one of those things you can read it and you can intellectualize it, but until you're sitting there holding a baby, you don't have any sense of what it was like for anyone else who's ever been there. And to look at my own parents and my father, especially who I had a very difficult relationship with to realize, God, he did this for eight of us and we're all okay. Like everybody, everybody got out of the house and was ready to go. My parents' mode of parenting, I think was when you turn 18, you're on your own. So you better get ready. Like they, they prepared us. There was never any shortage of love. There was a lot of tough love. Even at really erratic moments, I never felt like I wasn't loved deeply. But I always knew that, man, there's going to be a moment when I got to do everything for myself. And that was, you know, I look at my parents and say, well, they went eight for eight because everybody got that's out amazing. and did okay. Yeah, that's great. You know, that's, that stuff really gets simplified quick when you're holding your own baby. Speaking of your parents, on the podcast, we talk a lot about our parents and growing up with their music tastes and how our parents either did or didn't influence right. at all our music taste. Did your parents, you know, play music in the house or was there any music going on in the house? There was always music. My mom was a huge fan of like musicals and certain things. And she mm -hmm. sang barbershop music, which mm. is, oh, cool. you know, a little to the to the <laughs> white of white. My mom was um, You know, but. Yeah. That's one way to say it, yeah. But she was really good at it. She has a great passion for music. My dad didn't have any musical inclination. I have an older brother, Tom, who played guitar my whole life. He's the guy that handed me some Beatles records and said, here, listen to this, because he was sick of me playing my one Bee Gees album at the time. And he still plays. He lives in Denver and, you know, he's retired and has a weekend bar band with friends in, in his 60s. He's a great player. But it's funny, I somebody asked me the other day, like, the two biggest influences. I was like, well, the Beatles and my brother's garage band when he was a high school senior. You know, like that's the two <laughs> things, the biggest yeah. band ever, and then a band that never played anywhere but my garage <laughs> were the two <laughs> things that really kicked me in the ass the most. So my parents didn't, I think most importantly, they didn't mind popular music. My mom liked the Beatles. Like I'd be in there listening to Beatles records and she would come in and hum along and move her head a little bit, you know, and I think punk and new wave threw a bit of a wrench for her, you know, but then after she's heard a song a few times, she's humming along and doing her barbershop harmonies over, you know, a B-52 <laughs> song or something. And it's like, all right, cool. You know, there was no, they, they certainly didn't mind that I was obsessively listening to records in the basement all day. You know, nice. it wasn't a problem. Yeah. And that's a, that's a huge thing, you know, because yep. in my generation, I was born in 1965. There's plenty of kids who were still growing up in houses where they were like, stop listening to those rock records. And I, I never heard that once in my life. 
That, that's awesome. And now as your kids got older and you were a dad, did you influence them, you know, in certain music or did they show you music that you would have never like heard before? Cause I have a 13 year old and a nine year old. They were showing me like Billie Eilish years ago sure. or different stuff where before she blew up where I would have never knew of her. Well, that that's happened for sure. And so I would tell my friends, there's this girl, she's, you know, doing this weird thing. And now she's, you know, the biggest star. So. Yeah, no, that's happened for sure. I mean, the stuff that they're really into, I would never go out and find on my own at all. And that's everything from, yeah. from a band like, you know, five seconds of summer that my daughter was really into. Yeah. She, she loves Taylor Swift. <laughs> she loves all kinds, but she likes a lot of bands all time low. They're power pop. I don't know how you would classify them. Emo pop, something like that. Yeah. 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 That, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. My son listens to everything, but like, he's the first guy who I ever heard the words Kendrick Lamar from, you know, mm. and he's <laughs> really into rap and hip hop and very much into that. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, he's in college now he goes to Indiana university and I'll open his door to his room and he's listening to, well, the other day he walked in the kitchen. He goes, Hey dad. I go, yeah. And he goes, man, Steely Dan is fucking awesome. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, yes, yes, they are. Yes, they are. You know, and I learned early on that, you know, they're, they're both going to find their way. And he, he's got friends that are, you know, that have introduced him to the Smiths and introduced him to REM and the hoodoo gurus and stuff. And it's way better that he finds it out for his friend. I, I just didn't want to be, at the end of the day, I'm still their dad and I'm not supposed to introduce them to great music. I have friends who have raised their kids and their kids are great and they have great taste in music and they raise their kids listening to Wilco. God damn it. You know, <laughs> I, I just wasn't going to be that. Dad. Yeah. I just, uh, plus yeah. I'm, I'm a, you know, my kids grew up going to black crow shows. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like that's their, yes. that's like going to see your dad at work. And they did that and they would sit right behind the drum kit with earplugs in and then they'd get bored and they'd go to the dressing room and get an orangina <laughs> and then they would come back out if you know oh, when are they playing hard to handle let's go check that one out you know because they just like to see crowds cheer you know or whatever like that's normal sure. to them and i think i picked up early on that they both really i mean they they truly love music my daughter goes to see concerts and she steps out of herself i mean like she is it's, it's beautiful to be with her at a show, sitting three rows behind her. Like, so she, you know, I don't want to cramp her style. But, yeah, yeah. You know, from yeah. the time she was like in eighth grade, I'd take her to see shows. And she was into a lot of artists. And I'm literally, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. But we, I would take her to clubs to see artists where, you know, it'd be, it'd be an all-ages show, but it was in clubs. And she would just hand me her phone and say, <laughs> see ya. And I was like. Oh, God bless her. Cause she was there yeah. for the experience, you know? Awesome. And she's still, I mean, I swear the last year has been harder on her than anyone else in the family. Cause she hasn't yeah. been able to see live music. Uh, we just, at, yeah. our last episode we recorded was just on concerts and just discussing that. how we miss yeah. them and I'm everything important. like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's weird. I've, I'm sure I miss playing more, but I, some days I think I just want to go to a gig. Like I don't, I don't want to have to go rehearse and get back in shape. So I really just want to go see someone else <laughs> who's done that. Yeah. <laughs> You know. Exactly. So we have to ask you about your book that we all loved immensely. For those of you out there who haven't read it, it's called Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of the Black Crows. It's amazing. All three of us were super into it and our other friends as well. So much that we had actually a text chain for months on end. Yeah. 
exclusively yeah. talking about this book and the stories oh, so you're gonna have and to share arguing. Whole, you'll have to share that whole thread with me or I'm not going to believe <laughs> taking, it. Taking poses sides with the various you books. and others, you know. I'm a huge Thanks Stephen so. Hyden fan. I mean, I followed him from his days writing for Bill Simmons and yeah. his podcast. I heard you on there a couple of times. And when I when he announced that he was doing the book with you, I knew it was like a perfect combination. Have you been thinking about doing that for a while before you met Stephen or... Well, yeah, I mean, I'd been the guy that everybody always just would say, like, it was a throwaway line. Well, if anyone's going to write the book, it has to be Steve, uh, you know, just because I, I have a really good memory and I'm a storyteller. And it just seemed like, generally speaking, everybody always looked at me like, well, that's the one guy who's kind of sees things for what they are, if you will. But it was always a joke. I forgot all about the fact that in 2010, I forgot about this until a few years ago, when I started to write what became hard to handle. I was looking through all the files on my laptop. And in 2010, I actually thought then maybe I'll write the book during the tour in 2010 because I was quite confident that would be the last tour. And I thought, this is the time to write. And so I started writing. And as soon as we started putting the tour together, I realized like, this is not, I can't possibly go play these shows and then get to a hotel and then write each day. You know, it was just way too much to do in real time. And then by the end of that tour, the last thing I wanted to do was think about the Black Crows. I was like, man, oh God, what a <laughs> that just that just went into the ditch yet again. This is not cool. Like I had lost my perspective again, as I had many times. And so so I met I met Stephen Hyden in twenty thirteen via Twitter. I just I responded to a tweet of his. And he came back right away and we just had this brief exchange. And then suddenly there was a DM and he just said, hey, man, I'm just so happy to see you. And Shake Your Moneymaker is the first cassette I ever bought at a Kmart in 1990, you know, and, and right there. And I said, well, man, I've been a fan of your writing for a long time. And so we were going to uh, Madison, Wisconsin shortly thereafter. And he said, I'm going to see you in Madison. And I just said, oh, dude, well, let's get a beer. Like, that'll be great. So that's where it started. And then he saw us in Madison. And then I guess a month later or so, we played Milwaukee. And he was at both those shows. And we just struck up a friendship that way and didn't talk about the Black Crows really at all. You know, like it, when you do, you meet someone, you talk about mm -hmm. anything else. So we were just yeah. talking about <laughs> other records and, you know, in sports yeah. and whatever. And I think at some point he had said something like, just after a while, he goes, man, you have so many stories, man. Have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, well, I have thought about it, but it's just something that I, I, I don't know what would ever be the right time because I all I knew about it was it would take a long time. Like I was like, I, I don't know when I have a year and a half or two years of my life to just put this together. And he said, like, totally innocent. Well, man, if you ever need, if you ever want to talk about it or if you ever need help. And I said, cool, that'd be great. And I, I really didn't think about it again. When ESPN pulled the court on Grantland, mm. which was at, what, 2015 maybe or 16? Yeah, somewhere around there. Yep, around there. I texted him that morning. I said, hey, dude, I hope you're okay. If you have nothing to do, I guess we can write that book now. And I, I was totally kidding. Now, he... Of course, thought that was like <laughs> awesome, you know, and he told me later that meant so much to him. And I was like, yeah, sorry. I was just saying that, man, uh, you know, but within a couple of years, you know, I was talking with him regular. you know, he would, if he was in town, we get together. We're totally just buddies. You know what I mean? Like yeah. just see him over, uh, you know, every, about every year we'd find ourselves in the same town, but we would text about stuff, mostly Packer games and Titans games, you know, really. <laughs> but I said at yep. some point. I do, I do remember saying when, after Ed Harsh died, you know, he texted like, man, I'm so sorry. And all that. So yeah, it's fucking horrible. Within a few weeks of that, I said, I just keep thinking about writing now. 
And and he said, well, just let me know. And that was really, I mean, that's when this whole thing started. Like there was such a finality to everything that I cared about where the Black Crows were concerned with Ed's death, which is not to say I ever thought there was a future for the Black Crows for me. Mm -hmm. I didn't think, I, I didn't think that, but it just was, you know, if anything ever just shuts a door, it's, it's a literal death. You know, when someone's gone, when there's no more phone calls to be made or anything, it's like, oh, well, okay, this really is over in any situation. So for me, in the context of the Black Crows, that was totally unexpected that that would do that to me at the time. But I was like, oh man, I, okay. So everything's done now. Like there is no more chapter to be written. And how do I really think and feel? Like, where am I with all this? And what what does this mean to me right now? And so I just kind of stewed on that for a few months. And sometime within six months, I'd say, of his passing. So sometime in, in 2017, I was like, okay, I think I see this right now. I think I, I think I get it. And then I still wanted to wait a while to see if I still... It wasn't so much what I thought, but is my gut settled? Is everything where it is? And by the end of that year, sometime in 2018, I said, hey, man, I'm going to do this. And so are you serious? Do you really want to help? And he said, yeah. And I, of course, said, well, how does this work? He goes, hell, I don't know. I've never helped anyone write. I just write. (laughs) And we established right away, like, okay, well, neither one of us knows what we're doing. So let's (laughs) let's just see what happens. I think initially I thought to myself, well, maybe this will be the thing where I just tell him stories and he goes and writes a book. And mm-hmm. as soon as we started, I realized, like, I that's I can't do that. I got to write this. I mean, I've always written. I'm happy to write. I just wasn't sure uh, what would make sense. But then as soon as we started talking about it, he said, he came up with the idea. He said, well, look, how about this? How about we get together over the few weekends, over the next few months, and let's just sit down. And because I told him, I have a good linear chronological memory. You know, I don't have to bounce around. And he said, well, let's just sit down and I'll just prompt you with questions and let me just record you telling all these stories. And then let's take that transcript and then frame out a book that you can then go write. And so basically, like we did the cliff notes first. He had hours of me talking and us having conversations. We're looking at that and he's going, well, here's the story, right? I mean, like I told him, I said, look, I can write this book, but... I need a map because I'll write for nine years. You know, I'll just never <laughs> stop. I'll just keep going back and adding detail. We charted yeah. a course. We laid out 40 chapters and said, chapter one's going to start here and it's going to end here. And in the middle, make sure you mention these three things. So like, you know, that chapter was, it was a series of bullet points that I would then sit down and turn into a 5,000 word chapter. Mm. And along the way, of course, there's a million things that I forgot to tell him that came up and then there's a bunch of, you know, and then I just went and wrote and wrote and wrote and I wrote, you know, over 900 pages was the original manuscript that we turned in. And as I was writing it, I'm editing for flow in real time. Like I, but I did it in order. Like I said, I got to write chapter one and then I got to write chapter two. There was never a moment where I could have written a book where I just woke up with inspiration. I'm going to write that story that happened in 1997 right now. Like that wouldn't have worked for me. So I did write it in order. Certain days, nothing happens. Certain days, I can't stop. And when I would say a chapter's done, when I got to where I wanted to end a chapter, I would then start over and I would read it aloud to get the tone. I would hear myself. And then I, after you know each day, uh, several days on every chapter at least, when I felt good about it, I would send it to him. And he would just say, looks great, man. It's kind of long. <laughs> that was like... Pretty long, you know, and, and he knew things that I didn't know, which is a publisher doesn't want to 
print a 900 page book. It costs a lot. You know, I, I'm not thinking that way. I'm just telling the story. My deadline was Halloween of 2018. And that's the day we turned it in. He said, I think it's great, but it's really, really long. I was like, no, let him read it first. Let's just make sure. And of course, we turned it in and right away it came back like, hey, great job. What the fuck is this? Like, you know, they, you know, they were looking for 250 pages, yeah. you know. So then Stephen put on his cape again and said, OK, well, I, as you've been sending me chapters, I've been already kind of marking in my head what I think could be cut. Things that don't interrupt the overall narrative. He would say, like, these five stories are all great. But for the greater purpose of the book, they tell the same story. So just pick which one you think is the, which one do you like the most? That was incredibly helpful because my first response to someone telling me it's too long and you got to cut it by a third was to say, well, fuck you. <laughs> and this is gold. And how dare you? I didn't say that, but that's what I felt. <laughs> and I did think it would be perfectly in line with Black Crow's thinking to put out a 900 page book <laughs> out of the, you know, like release the box set first, do it. <laughs> and then I, I, one of the guys at the publishing company said, Hey man, have you ever recommended a book that you didn't finish? And I went, yeah, that's a good, that's a good measure. He goes, I don't care how good it is. People in the year 2019 don't read 900 pages of anything. And of course, in the two years since, that's been proven to be far more true. I mean, hell, you know, there's streaming services now that are offering 60 second films. Yes. It's like oh. the idea of people reading, at least for a first, you could say you like the Black Crows, but a first time writer, the whole idea of another book about another band. I mean, yeah, it can be good and it can be unique, but 900 pages is fucking ridiculous to consider. <laughs> Well, had you thought in like a, a second edition, if another one ever came out like that, would you add a few extra yeah. maybe stories to it? Oh, yeah. I mean, we yeah, we released the paperback and it's the same book. But down the road, I, I do think there's a much, much expanded version, almost like a coffee table nice. book. Like, get you know, and I, cool. I, I've my friends run Genesis Publishing and they do those great rock coffee table books. Yeah. Cool. And I've thought about going to them because we could put the entire, well, the thing is this, it's one thing to say, okay, we've cut it from 900 to 350 pages, but then within those pages, there's many rounds of editing to make sure every detail is right. Every verb tense is right. Every adjective is not used too often. You know, the copy editor and I dug into this thing for months. Once Stephen and I were like, okay, this is the basic book. But all that to say, if I were going to put out a 900-page version, I gotta, that's got to happen mm. again. But right. I would love to do a bigger version with a ton of photos and a cool. ton of more personal mementos. It would be a limited edition thing. I don't think that's a bestseller, but it's, a, it's something that I know a lot of fans would really yeah. dig. We yes. will all buy that probably. 100%. <laughs> well, yes. that's, that's three. <laughs> start. The, and that's the other three, hold. and the other three guys in our checks, text chain they would probably be in there, buy yeah. it too. Um, <laughs> if you're promising me six copies sold, <laughs> this yeah. is nudging me closer to the starting line. Being a big Black Crows fan, you know, and, you know, I, I was someone who got into the band late. I'm, I'm only, you know, 37. So I didn't get into you guys really till Three Snakes came out. I um, can't believe we're even having this. <laughs> I thought you were OG, man. <laughs> 
when I when I finally like really dived deep into the band, Johnny Colt was 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 gone from the band. And I think for me, one of the, the biggest highlights of the book was to get a sense of how important Johnny was to the band, at least to you, mm-hmm. because, you know, based on the behind the music from uh, 99 and from, you know, just being on the message boards when people were yeah. trashing him for being in the band train and all that kind of stuff yeah. and Skinner, I got a sense that he was kind of like this throwaway bass player. But then to read all your stories, it was it was great. And did you really feel in the book that it was your job to really, you know, show his importance and his worth to the band? and to give him the respect that I, you felt he deserved. I don't think I felt like it was my job. It's just reality. And similarly for Ed and for Mark, you know, like the things those guys brought to the band. I mean, for people that, you know, the Black Crows in the 90s up until 97 were a very different thing than they ever were again. Everything we did in those years is what gave everybody a 20-year run since. I mean, clearly. For people that want to nitpick or talk about, well, it, it could have been anybody there or it wasn't necessarily because of the bass player. That's not the point. You know, the Chicago Bulls didn't win shit till Scottie Pippen mm-hmm. showed up and then yeah. they didn't win shit till Phil Jackson showed yeah. up. And then, you know, when Paxson was getting old, they had to go get Steve Kerr. It's like yeah. chemistry is everything. The chemistry of that band from 91, even before Mark joined, the band turned into a really good rock and roll band in 1991. Now, Mark was a giant upgrade across the board. We had already done our job, and so we were ready for someone like him. He came in, and there's no greater cherry on top of a well-baked cake in the history of music. You know, that guy just elevated everything. But but in large part, that had already happened because of what Ed brought to the table. But the rest of us, me, Johnny, and the brothers who were there from the start, we worked our ass off too. Like, it was just all of the elements matter. Yeah. You can sit there and talk about what might have been, but why? Because what was, what actually was, is the story to me. Johnny being a throwaway bass player is, it's a, I understand how people thought that. I would hope that people don't. I'm glad that the book has, you know, at least opened your eyes to that not being the case. And there are people that would still tell you he was, and they're wrong. idea what they're talking about two of those people are still in the black crows and they're wrong <laughs> you know the fact is they're wrong about everything i you know I, I i read on twitter the other day that in the shake your money maker box set it says that i was a drummer from kentucky like that's how they <laughs> describe me like just yeah. this guy you know it's like okay yeah. fine whatever you want to rewrite history i don't have time in a day to think about how completely sad that is for someone that thinks that's an appropriate representation of what I was for the Black Crows. It's the same thing with Johnny. It's the same thing with Mark. It's the same thing with Ed. And for that matter, Luther was great in the band. Adam did a fucking wonderful job. Sven's an amazing bassist. It's not a knock against the guys that came later. But the fact of the matter is that incarnation of the band from Southern Harmony through the album we called Band that we recorded in 97, 
There's just a chemistry and a magic to that that involves everybody. It's six guys at a time in all of their lives and an age and with a level of experience and still hungry and still curious and still all of these things that one day those things aren't there anymore. They haven't been there for a long time. Doesn't mean you can't still be a really good group. You can't put on great shows. But to me, the greatest bands are about chemistry. You know, George Martin always said, I didn't sign the Beatles because they were good. I signed them because they were exceptional people. And he said, when those four guys walked into a room, the electricity in the air changed. And I recognized that. That's what I signed. In those years in the 90s, the, the six members of the Black Crows changed the dynamic of rooms we entered. There's no getting around it. And so that's what was really so special to me. Having gone through my own walk through fire or whatever to get myself at a place where I felt healthy, Johnny's situation was shorter lived and far more intense. You know what I mean? He had the deluxe package in way less time. There but for the grace of God go I that I didn't develop a, a drug addiction or some alcoholism along the way. But he did and then he figured it out and then got past it and moved on. And in what now looks like a very short amount of time. You know, he yeah. bottomed out, pulled himself out, while still in the band. I mean, that's an incredible thing to accomplish. At the, the Black Crows at yeah. that time, I, I still look back in absolute awe that he was able to do all that he did and did it so successfully. And he's, you know, he's 24 years removed and he's had the best 24 years out of any of us, I promise you. <laughs> you touched on earlier the Jimmy Page era, which that passage, I think in oh, the book is my favorite whole passage, just because I, I, I saw your show at Jones Beach in New York no, there wasn't many shows. That was a good one. That was that was. But it was incredible. That was the uh, that was the last show before we took a break and my son was born. I remember it very well. My wife wow. was nine hundred months pregnant backstage <laughs> that night. <sighs> that's so funny. I mean, when people ask me like, "What are the favorite shows you ever saw?" That's that's right up there. Yeah. I mean, I tell people that was as close to seeing Zeppelin in my mind as possible. You know, you guys were just fire. Oh, and then cool. even Live at the Greek, the Live at the Greek album is one of my favorite drumming albums yeah. ever. Great album. sound of your kit on that album, especially your snare. But I just want to ask you, what was your like mindset when you knew you were going to do this with Jimmy Page, like tackling the John Bonham catalog? Well, I, you know, I was really excited. I've ripped off Bonham as much as you can, you know, like anybody has. I mean, I think I, not, not necessarily with the specific chops, but just the vibe, you know, like I, yeah. Ringo's always been my guy. Like Ringo plays the way Ringo's tracks feel like what drums are supposed to feel like to me. I didn't dig into Zeppelin until I was 21 in Atlanta, mm. just bought my first drum kit. And the first time I ever put on Led Zeppelin 1 with headphones, I was already in a band. Okay. Now, I'd heard Zeppelin my whole life, but I'd never owned a Zeppelin album. Mm. Well, I did. have I had Led Zeppelin 4 from a Columbia uh, record and tape <laughs> club misfire to my dorm room. But other than that, you know, I'd, but I'd, I put on Led Zeppelin 1 and I just listened all the way through and it was like, you know, I'm the nine billionth guy to go, oh, my God, I've seen the light. You know, and this is 1987. Yeah. Oh, my God, that's 
that's the other guy. Like I have Ringo and now I have this guy. And so right away from playing, I wasn't trying to emulate Ringo or Bonham with what I played, but my mindset was always those two guys. Mm. Just swing it, man. Just make it feel good and everybody else can do whatever the fuck they want. If it feels good, it works. And along the way, of course, Charlie Watts and Stone's records, you know, you break down the guitar tones on Exile on Main Street and the bass tones and the drum sounds, you're like, this sounds terrible. It doesn't (laughs) matter. It feels great. You know, that's the whole point. All this to say, I just, Zeppelin records to this day just make me feel right. That's just what things are supposed to be. So when we knew that was going to happen, it was originally a one-off. That was just exciting, and it was like, you know, but then Jimmy said, I want to do On My Time of Dying, and I was like, (laughs) fuck. Yeah. I remember being on a flight somewhere and we were all there and I put that on with headphones like, okay, just got to make sense of this. I found it much easier to listen to bootlegs than the studio versions because okay. the studio versions are like sacrosanct. Yes. They're, I mean, they're they're untouchable because you've heard them so many times. For the first time ever, I started really listening to bootlegs and I was like, oh, they're just, they're not trying to recreate the records. I mean, I knew that, but yeah. I really was like, that made it easier to figure out the, you know, I could, I could recognize the arrangements much simpler. <laughs> And then it just, you know, Bonham never repeated himself. And so that took this huge pressure off me. I'm like, oh, he every night's different for him. Yeah. Fuck, it's going to be different for me. This is great. And I was just doing this as a member of my own band. Jimmy joined the Black Crows. That's how that worked. And I've said this a bunch, and it's totally true. If Jimmy and Robert and John Paul Jones call me and say, let's go be Led Zeppelin, see, that's a whole different conversation. That's like, oh, <laughs> fuck. This was the Black Crows, which I was already the drummer of. And we're going to learn Zeppelin songs, play them in a way that we're comfortable playing them. We want them to feel good the way the Black Crows play because it was just, we're a great band. I have a great bassist. I got a good singer. I mean, a great singer, great front man. And I got Oddly and Rich as complimentary guitarist to Jimmy. This is going to be a fucking breeze. And Eddie's going to play. You know, it was just easy in that regard. Yeah. I spoke to Jason Bonham a few weeks ago. For my radio show, we've met once. We've never talked. And I was like, he did that show in 2007, right. the Led the Zeppelin show. show. Yeah. And, and you know, my wife and I were there. You know, Jimmy oh, invited oh, wow. us. And we were oh, like awesome. guests of his. And it was great. It was funny because right before the we took our seats, we're in the O2 arena in the concourse. And I'm standing there with Dave Grohl and Chad Smith. And the first <laughs> thing I said was, you know, this is supposed to be my gig. Right? And, and, and Chad said, no, my, <laughs> my gig. gig yeah. And Dave goes, fuck you both, my gig. And we're all laughing awesome. about it. And then we go take our seats. And then the show happens. And then after the set, we're backstage in the bar and we're talking about it. And we're all going, man, that was a lot of pressure. Like when the lights went down, my first thought was, I was surprised. I was like, oh, come on, man. Come on, man. Don't, don't, don't shit your pants. Come on. Like, because on top of everything else, it's the fucking guy's dad. Yeah. You know, I was yeah. really yeah. like, this is your job if it never occurred to you to let him know you thought he was a good drummer. That's how I looked at it. Um, so anyway, I was, I was really happy to talk to him. We had a great chat. 
That's awesome. Yeah, I was supposed to see when you guys were supposed to open for The Who later in that tour oh, at, the garden? at the garden. And when I heard yeah, the news, I was been, like, those would have <sighs> been insane. I was like devastated. Yeah, when the whole thing was getting put together and then they're like, then we're going to do two nights at the garden. We'll be on the same night, 90 minutes with you guys, 90 minutes with the Who yeah. right away. I was like, and I lived in Brooklyn then and I said like, oh, I'm taking the train to those gigs. I'm taking the fucking two, three line from Flatbush. And by God, I'm going to take the subway to go play Madison Square Garden. That'll be awesome. Yeah, and the Who were still really killer back then. You know, I feel like that tour, they, yeah. they kicked ass that tour. So Yeah. Yeah, Zach is like, I saw the Quadrophenia tour a few years ago, and I was just like, dude, like, seriously, what, what is with, how, what the, what, how does that even happen? Like, your dad is Ringo Starr, and then you you have the moon thing down. Well, Unbelievable. Didn't, didn't, didn't Moon and Bonham teach him or something like that? Was, were, weren't they his drum teachers, I think? Yeah, and it was funny talking to Jason because he tells, you know, he's telling stories about Ringo and Moon and, and, his, and dad. Yeah. You know, wow. it's just like... I was like, yeah, my, my dad was a bowling, worked for uh, <laughs> yeah. Brunswick Bowling, and your dad was John Bonham. Okay, cool. Yeah, right on. And you did eventually get to, to play MSG. I did see that New Year's Eve show, and that was... Uh, oh, yeah. You know, it was a good show. I know in the book you thought, le you know, less of it. I think in the grand scheme of things, it was a, it was an overshoot. And, you know, I was actually going to ask about that. The whole 2005, mm -hmm. you know, tour was... I saw so many shows on that and then got to see the New Year's Eve show. I mean, my favorite show I was talking to both these guys about, I was listening to today just to rev myself up, was a show outside in Philly. At, I think it was at the Tower Theater. Yeah. You guys crushed. Like, it was an amazing played, show. Uh, that, I, I remember playing the Pink Floyd song, Fearless. I think that was the yes. first time we ever played it. that particular moment so clearly I mean honestly God I have goosebumps because I was so happy we were playing that song and when it kicked in I remember the audience being like no fucking way <laughs> yeah. everybody I want to say it was the end of the first set the last song of the first set it was it just, awesome. it just brought we played the tower a bunch but that moment I remember so clearly being like Man, this is some fucking, this is magical right now. I love yeah. that. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. But it was interesting because, you know, seeing all those 05 shows and then the New Year's Eve show, which kind of, you know, reading the book kind of was, you know, a mess and the things were falling apart backstage. And then that whole 2006 tour, that summer tour that kind of, again, was a huge overshoot, like where you they were giving free tickets away. Were things in the band just like a total mess at the time or what was kind of happening? Well, it was a mess and it was really sad. Yeah. Ed was at a, he had just crossed this line that junkies cross where it's just like, oh, wow, he's a real mess. Ed had a situation in New York City where he got like beat up. You know, that's not, I don't think oh, anybody man. really knows that story, but there was a really dark moments for Ed that summer. And it was very clear he was just, um, we had seen Ed come and go in bad shape and get his shit together before, but it's like, again, there's just a certain point where all of a sudden it's like, wait, this, he's not going to come back from this. 
and you can talk to them all you want, but you're just talking to a, a wall. You know, it's over. And so it was yeah. really, that was terrible. It was really sad. Mark was also struggling with his sobriety all of a sudden, and that was terrible and sad. I remember just being really happy that Sven kept his shit together because I was so worried about Sven at that time. When that tour ended, you know, we that, that year was laid out in advance. We were going to play all through the fall. The whole point was to go out and just continue to play. And then the idea was always 2007, we'll make a record. But I think that by the end of that summer run, I mean, looking back, it's real clear to see, not unlike 1997, we just ran ourselves into the ground. It took us seven years the first time. Well, as much older people, it only took a year and a half the second time. You know what I mean? It's like we ran ourselves into dust. And of course, it's obvious this thing to do would have been to pull the plug, everyone go home, Let's see if we can't get everybody the help they need and let's keep this band together. But that was just not a possibility. I mean, the, you know, this, I'm not pointing fingers and kicking dirt in people's faces. The Robinson brothers would have never in a billion fucking years done that. It's just that simple. And so it was a real, you know, all of the promise of 2005 and all of the feelings of we're going to do it right this time, you know, by the time the summer 2006 rolled around, that was just done. And yeah. it sucked. Like you said, it is sad, you know, looking back, because that band was rip-roaring in 2005. Like, you guys were actually sounding so well, great. Well, and, and the band was rip-roaring in 95. It was really good yeah. in 96. And as much as, and I know people love the, the band in 97, and I don't disagree that we were a really good band, but it had just become too hard again. Like, we were, we were killing ourselves. I mean, that's why I don't look back on that era fondly. Like, it's not my job to tell you when we were a great band. I can just tell you when it sucked mm-hmm. to be there. You know what I mean? Like, fans who love, I always say, fans are right. They prefer a certain time. Good, cool, great. I'm glad you like anything. The experience on the inside is very different. And in 1997 and in 2006, you know, we fucked ourselves in 1997 by not going, we just have to do whatever it takes to keep this band together. And then nine years later, we did it again, you know? And it's kind of like, you know, the rock and roll gods don't forgive that shit. You take chemistry and you shit on it, you will pay the price. And and no one's paying that price more than the two guys out calling themselves the Black Crows in the year 2021. Yeah. I mean, the book to me, it's a sad book and it's a grateful book, you know? There's a lot of sadness and there's always going to be within the story of the Black Crows. And there's a lot of great moments and a lot of... Really wonderful opportunities, you know what I mean? I mean, the band gave me every... I mean, I'd never... I didn't have a passport Mm. until 1990. All of a sudden, I had to go get a passport. Like, holy shit, we're going to England. And we're going to the Netherlands. Like, are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) You know, my kids have been all over Europe. It it was great. It's It's a sad story in the context of what could have been. But at the end of the day, that's just for us. For the people who love the band and love the music, it's fucking fantastic.
Crows are top five man in my life. And I've that's that. great. Yeah, that's awesome, here. man. I, yeah. I, you know, I've I've spent a little bit of time over the years with Mike Mills, and I'm like, man. I we get along fine. But I, when he leaves the room, I'm like, that guy's yeah. the reason I play <laughs> yes. music. I saw REM. Yeah. I saw REM uh, before oh, Murmur was released, lucky. and it oh, wow. yes. changed my life. You know, yeah. like literally. Yeah. Oh, okay. You know, I always knew I was going to be a drummer, and I knew I was going to be in a band. But suddenly, I knew I was going to be in a band. Like I, yeah. REM meant the absolute. I mean, that was the conduit. That was the. That's when everything that was just in my head plugged into the wall and went, "Okay, motherfucker, you're doing yeah. this." You know? Yeah. At the end of every episode, the three of us talk about music that we have been listening to, you know, some new artists or just in general music that maybe is older that we've, you know, been reconnecting with or just discovered. Who are some bands or artists that you've been, you know, listening to that, you know, you want to, you know, give a shout out to or just, you know, what you've been listening to lately? I'm just going to throw out, here's a nepotism alert, <laughs> a band called Illiterate Light. My nephew yes. is the singer, the guitarist. And I, I only say this because they're oh. fucking great and real. Literate light is good for whatever ails you. And I'm pretty good at not letting my personal feelings impact my taste, which is my way of saying I've heard a lot of music from a lot of people I love that I was like, okay, I'm glad you're happy. I would never mention that to another soul. Uh, that's not the case with the literate light. I fucking love the band. Awesome. My nephew, Jeff Gorman, plays guitar and sings. His drummer, Jake Cochran, is one of my favorite drummers. They're both wonderful human beings, and I truly love that band. tell you this quite sincerely I would say that if I'd never known them on any level because when they found themselves and finally put it together the first time I saw them it was like it was not unlike I mean it made me want to go start a band wow. I just went oh my god it was like someone handed me the sword from Excalibur again like that's what they make me feel like and now with the, you know, hopefully with the pandemic ending soon and things opening back up, uh, what what are some things that you have coming up or lined up for, for the year? Um, I'm guessing Trigger Hippie might. Yeah, no, for sure. Or, Trigger Hippie um, is going to play. Uh, we actually, we're going to play a show in Nashville. We'll announce it pretty soon in May. We're playing in Chattanooga in June. Well, and then hopefully in the fall, uh, so a few more things. We'll definitely have some a bunch of stuff cooking for 22. There's a lot, you know, all the offers are coming in now and we're trying to put it together. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Steve, thank yep. you so, so much for coming yeah. on to the podcast. No worries, man. Thank it. you guys very much. 
All right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Steve Gorman. Thanks for listening to this episode. And a huge thanks to Steve Gorman for coming on our show and talking with us. It was truly an honor for us to have that conversation with him. And we hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed having it. You can follow Steve on Twitter at SGSFox, on Instagram at Steve underscore Gorman. You can also check to see if his syndicated radio show, Steve Gorman Rocks, is in your area by going to stevegormanrocks.com. While there, you can find clips of his interviews with some legends of rock music. If you want to check out his band Trigger Hippie, which we definitely suggest doing, you can find them all on streaming platforms or go to triggerhippie.com. Finally, if you haven't already, do yourself a favor and go read or listen to his book, Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of the Black Crows. It was a great read and was incredibly enlightening to what went on during Steve's long tenure with the band. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and tell your fellow music-loving dads or moms or anyone to check it out. And if this is your first time listening to the show, we hope you'll check out our previous episodes. And whether this is your first time or you've been listening to the show for the past year, and you like or even love what you've heard, we'd love for you to rate and review the podcast. Not only will it be informative to us, but it does really help promote the show. We can be found on Instagram and Twitter at Dad Rocks Pod, as well as on Facebook by searching up Dad Rocks! Exclamation point. If you have any questions, comments, or any show ideas for us, or just want to give us a shout, you can email us at dadrockspod at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening today. Thanks again for listening this whole past year. We really appreciate you all listening to our show. And remember, dads, you rock. Thank you.